Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're welcoming back Dan Kazmaier, one half of the husband-wife powerhouse and owners of Steep Games, the publisher behind the highly successful Chai series of board games based around their love of tea. Currently on Kickstarter and significantly over their base goal is their newest title, Chai Tea for Two. Dan, welcome back to The Binge. How are you doing? Hey, pretty good. Not sure we're a powerhouse, maybe a tea house or, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'd call you a powerhouse. You guys have done incredibly well. We're going to get into it in this uh, this podcast. First, of course, I want to start off by uh, pouring myself some tea just to get in the right mood okay. here. I'm not sure if you got some tea on yours. Oh, of course, you've got tea there ready to go. Take a little sip here, wet the whistle. <clears throat> what are you drinking today? I got uh, peppermint. I have some weird mix that was in our cupboard of loose leaf tea. Hey. But it's supposed to be calming, so if you see me kind of start to chillax as we go through the interview, as yeah. the tea kicking in. It's very zen. I see uh, Grogu in the background, Baby Yoda. He enjoys his tea. Yeah, so. absolutely. He's a little bone broth guy there for sure. Absolutely. Right. Congratulations on the uh, on the pregnancy. I know that was announced uh, amongst yeah. your community. I think that's uh, absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> um, I know Connie is probably pretty busy right now with, uh, with things, mm-hmm. and uh, so we got... Your undivided attention tonight, which is uh, incredible. Totally. So a couple things I want to get into right before we start off the get-go. For people who uh, don't know Steep Games, can you give us just a quick overview of your company, what your company is all about? Sure. Um, we're out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So there's Roxley and a few others of us out here. Um, you're also Canadian, which is awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> um, a few years ago, we made a game on tea called Chai. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. It's being translated into a few languages right now in different countries. Um, yeah, we have other games in the works, but we decided, hey, let's make a two-player game in the same universe. It's a, a different game altogether, but it's kind of the uh, tea plantation for true tea lovers. Now, there's going to be a lot to unpack here, but I just want to give our viewers an idea. And when I say powerhouse, this is why I say powerhouse. So uh, you've got 2.3 thousand members of your Chai board game community uh, on Facebook, which is continuing to grow, right? So you got a, you got a lot of fans that are deeply involved in this universe you've built out. Uh, your first game, Chai, $136,000, 2,596 backers. You went from there into Chai High Tea, which is an expansion of Chai. That was $212,000 uh, Kickstarter campaign, 4,127 backers. And here you are with Chai Tea for Two, already at 115,000. I had to keep ref- refreshing my number right up until we went live because <laughs> it just kept changing. The thing just keeps going like a little dial. Right. Um, but 2,357 backers so far, still 22 days to go. Uh, you got to be absolutely pumped about that. Yeah. Uh, well, to be completely honest, we've been more focused on doing the fulfillment for our previous campaign. So. Oh, yeah. um, it's kind of too bad that they both overlap quite a bit. Um, it's been a rough year for COVID just with uh, logistics, you know, shipments have been up four times. Yeah. Um, the factory was shut down for a few months, that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, the last two days we've been head over heels in Excel documents. And um, I just tuned into Kickstarter for the first time today, uh, like half an hour <laughs> ago. So um, yeah, we, we've been having a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, it, things are, are definitely we're ordering pizza every day, sort of thing. <laughs> frozen lasagna. So uh, we had no expectations for this campaign. I thought, hey, the amount of work we put into it, maybe a hundred thousand would be awesome. Yeah. Just so that we can uh, keep the momentum going. But 
yeah, really pleasantly surprised in how people have embraced it. Yeah, and I, I can relate to the, the the shipping side. I mean, with COVID, uh, you know, everything from um, increased uh, shipping costs have gone through the roof across all industries, quite frankly, not just the board game industry. But, uh, right. you know, the, the rates around the world are significantly higher than they were before. In the past, when they say, you know what, you got six weeks uh, for the boat to arrive, now you're looking at, uh, you know, could be three months in some cases for stuff to uh, to arrive. So, um, you know, it can take uh, it can take some time to kind of get this logistics going. And when you have um, unknowns like this come out of nowhere, you can't totally. really plan for it, right? Like you can only plan for what you know, but you can't plan for what you don't know. You can try to put contingencies in place, but it's really really tough. What are some of the things you would say that? Um, uh, that disrupted your flow in, in in kind of these past couple of Kickstarters you've done as a result of some of these like shipping charges and COVID and so forth. Totally. Um, I guess there's always the unknowns. So yeah. even in insurance, like an act of God type thing or the Suez Canal, you're right, getting blocked up, um, which fortunately didn't impact us, but we know it costed like the Egyptian government 500 million or, or something crazy. So yeah, um, yeah, I think for us, uh, it was a surprise when the factory was shut down for like a month and a half because the government was like, hey, you guys make board games, you can make uh, boxes for COVID packaging. So yeah, the factory just had to obey. Um, they tried to outsource our stuff to a different factory, which was like, we also got um, requested to, to make COVID packaging. So uh, that was new. There was a couple of, um, you know, longer holidays, Chinese New Year, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, yeah, things just kind of <clears throat> kept going along. And I think for us going forward, it's just important to um, probably under promise, but over deliver. Yeah. So for this campaign, uh, we already have the factory files good to go for like the little T-tins. Mm -hmm. So they're actually going to start probably in two weeks. So before the campaign actually finishes, we're going to start making those really customized pieces. Yeah. Um, first player coins, that sort of thing. Um, because our games have quite like unique pieces, we involve three to four factories, whereas normally it would just be one. So it's good to get everything going uh, in advance. And then, yeah, who knows? Hopefully we can deliver maybe a month or two in advance instead of a month or two after. I actually ran into that with prototyping on my last game. Uh, I thought I had enough time to get my prototypes done because I knew Chinese New Year was coming, right? So I knew I had the month right. shutdown coming. I'm like, ah, plenty of time this time to get my prototypes done in time. I like my reviewer copies, for instance. And... Right. Uh, the, yeah, the plant just just said, you know, they start shutting down early because of COVID. They want to kind of reduce the risks and so forth. So instead of like, you know, ha not having access to these guys for a month, you know, that timeline started like three weeks early. So, you know, we had uh, a situation where we were supposed to get 25 reviewer copies. We ended up getting seven uh, and they were made oh, by yeah. hand because they couldn't right. do something simple as like the thermal trays. They're like, we, we, the, 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 the guys that make the trays are, are shut down. I'm like, well, can you 3d print them? Yeah. Like I need something right to get these out to, so we don't kill our timeline. <laughs> so I can, uh, I can totally relate. Let's jump into the actual uh, game itself. I'm going to go on to the Kickstarter page. Um, for people who are watching, people are listening, we'll try to use descriptive words as best we can to, uh, to talk about it. But can you walk us through kind of how do you play this game What's this game about? My understanding from the reviewer videos I've watched and the, the playthrough videos um, is that it, it's, it's a different mechanic. It's a different play style, actually, than, than the original Chai game, right? Yeah, it's more yeah. of... Um, we're still doing recipes, but instead of tea customers to your shop, you have these tea clippers, Yeah, uh, which the were boats. in like the 1860s onwards. 
um, the fastest, you know, modern day yachts, basically trying to get tea. Um, they're also doing logistics, I guess, going from uh, China and other parts of Asia back to London and New York. So um, we thought it'd be cool to uh, feature people being the actual tea plantation owners. So it's more from like a, um, an Asian perspective. Um, and of course, Chai brings that back as well, where uh, let's talk about the tea and the people behind it. So um, it's a worker placement game, um, but instead of little meeples, you're using dice and you're playing them on different action places to uh, get new teas, to, to harvest them, to move them up the track. Um, it's a pick up and deliver game. So you're going from the bottom of your plantation to the top of the board where the ships are. Um, so yeah. what, it, it, there's a lot to unpack here. So, and you can't see it, yeah, but I'm sharing the screen for the people that are watching the podcast. Let me just say that the artwork is stunning, right? And I know you guys did an amazing job on the, on the, on the first two games, but it's almost like it keeps getting better. Like it, it, it is a, like, and a, a lot of the reviewers said the same thing. This is a beautiful game when you look at it and you, you place it on the table. Um, and it almost, did you do research into these ships? Cause my understanding is these ships are actual ships, right? Like you've actually got them totally, stuck out. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. We read a good, um, 12 books, everything we could find at our local public library. Um, tried to get into, you know, the stories behind the sea captains, um, like how tea is made on plantation fields and then try to make that abstractly. So every little part of the board is actually a, a tea process. Um, like at the very top, there's a fermentation area yeah. where the, the little puer cakes go into. So um, yeah, we just want to make it super thematic and allow like a tea shop to carry it as an educa educational um, uh, product or game actually. Um, yeah, we have uh, different cards that would represent slightly different cultures. Mm -hmm. We kind of shied away from, you know, doing like Darjeeling or Ceylon cause that's a little bit more colonial. Um, we do have a history part in the book, but this was during the time where like the opium wars took effect and sure. uh, yeah, it's still the fantastical world of Chai. Like we have um, the Boston Tea Party boats in there. They weren't actually going to China, but um, yeah, we, we should probably, you know, have some characters that are totally realistic so that it's a bit of historical fantasy in a sense, but yeah, yeah it still introduces you to the topic. And I heard that is there, there's sweet tea in there now too, right? Yeah, yeah our, totally. our family plays games, put their uh, request in uh, to get sweet tea, and uh, you guys obliged and put right. it in there. I heard that's awesome. Now, talk to me a little bit about this uh, about this author in this book. So, I was looking through. You've got these, um, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, contests or people can submit their different ideas for future tea games. Mm -hmm. And can you talk to us a little bit about this book? Yeah. So, um, our graphic guy just put that up. I think we crossed that stretch goal a few hours ago. So, yeah. Um, there's one remaining tea clipper in the world, the Cuddy Sark. You might've seen it in paintings or sometimes it's in different films. Um, it's the most famous and surviving tea clippers. So uh, Eric Kentley, he's a historian and a museum curator. So he's the one who was in charge of installing the Cuddy Sark uh, just outside of London. Mm. So you can actually go there and kind of like um, a whale, it's like up in the sky with lots of plexiglass and you yeah. can walk right under it. That's cool. they had to restore it. So. Uh, we reached out to him. He's like, sure, I would love to do an introduction. I can check to make sure, like, the historical veracity of the boats and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's really cool having, like, an expert outside of the board game world. And then he's excited that it's becoming a game sort of thing. So, yeah. So we're how just... did you connect with him? Did you just pick up the phone and thought, let's call this guy? He seems to know a lot about Clippers. Yeah. Or... 
Uh, well, we had the 12 books from the library. And okay. We thought, um, you know, who's the most like well-respected person who talks about it and came across him, um, just went on LinkedIn and shot him a message and yeah, he connected right away. So it was super cool. Now this game has been like this version of the, the T for two has been on, you've been working on this for a while, I think. Right. So these games are kind of overlapped mm -hmm. and in, in different development stages along the way. How long have you been working on T for two? Uh, just over two years. So we intended to launch it last March. Um, or May, and then we kept bumping it back a few times. Mm. Um, but you have to book reviewers in advance and like banner mm. ads, different things. So um, May was kind of our last date. Um, and we, you know, have things like the Tantrum House, how to play locked in from 2019. So wow. it was time just to, <laughs> to make sure that we could like take care of the different contracts we had. And um, again, a little bit with the fulfillment coming in from the other campaign, like hopefully a lot of it is finished by the time this one ends. Yeah. So we've opted for a longer campaign and there's a longer pledge manager open, but um, yeah, the game's been going for two years, play tested hundreds of times, uh, different conventions, people have offered really cool feedback. So I think it's about 95% the way we want it to. Um, and the production copies look amazing. So there's oh, just yeah. a few tweaks. When did you get the, um, it in kind of the format that it's in right now from a prototyping standpoint, did you start off with kind of like cut out pieces of paper or did you go out like a game crafter type of a route and get actual tiles and everything made properly to kind of set yeah. this from a, the get go? Um, when we started Chai, we bought a 3D printer because hmm. we thought it would be cool to tinker. So we <laughs> um, had it running for a whole month and made 50 prototype copies to send to reviewers. Um, so this one, we, yeah, cut out the different pieces. I think I have some, yeah, here's an original piece that we made. You can see it's been played quite a bit. There's some dirt on it. Um, that one actually has like a double layer yeah. to it. So like the mountains are lifted in the sky. That's cool. Um, yeah, so the art itself, um, yeah, and I wasn't planning to show this, but I'll, I'll compare it to uh, our actual copy that we received from the factory. So that would be uh, the harvest board. That was my first version of it. And then Andy Bosley kind of helped. And that would be the, uh, the one we have currently. So you can tell like his draft of the art and then my graphic design on the bottom with the dice. Um, uh, super cool. So when you 3D printed this, um, you're 3D printing the plastic, I guess, right? And then you, what, sticker over top of it? Or how'd you get the graphics on there? Uh, well, for this game, we didn't do too much 3D printing. It would just be for like the T tokens. Got it, so, okay. So like all the things that come into the... Uh, the tins. Yeah. Um, instead of like having wooden pieces, it's easier just to create things with the 3D printer. But um, for this, it's just yeah, scissors. You take Avery stickers, full sheet Avery label. You play it on to uh, cardboard and then cut it out. Yeah, I've got a couple people in the lobby here. We got Mike. We got uh, Quality Beast. We got another Michael. 2020. Uh, people are saying congratulations. Pretty excited about uh, crossing 100,000. Uh, someone uh, saying, is there a tea contest? Let's talk about that. Um, Mike Bruner, again, with the 3D printing, uh, he, he loves uh, loves that for prototyping and thought, what a great idea. It's something we've actually been considering cool. here um, at, uh, at Tin Robot Games is getting a 3D printer to kind of help expedite some of that prototyping, right? Like the little pieces, yes. that's the tough stuff to do. So, And I think yeah. I saw somewhere, did I see you actually cutting out wood on one of your, one of your videos or one of your social media? What yeah, was that all about? So um, we created a Tea Master edition of Chai. Okay. So we handcrafted it and uh, we have two laser cutters. Yeah. So I was in the workshop for like three, four months. Um, 
I'm totally like an internal optimist. I thought it would take a lot quicker. We had like plexiglass and 20 types of paint. Um, each game has like 120 components to it. Yeah. So we got 60 of them out. Um, for this campaign, we're just having a custom made box with the laser cutter. So uh, we're That's stepping cool. back a little bit from it, but yeah, it's like another cottage industry basically. That's the decision you got to make, right? Is you, you mm -hmm. want to offer the best experience possible for your backers, right. right? You want them to have something that they almost have as a showpiece, right? And you kind of have to balance that with the practicality of larger numbers because your campaigns keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, yep. you know, your ability to actually pull it, turn those things around and, and, and deliver the quality yet at the same time, not kind of killing yourself in the process, right? And that's kind <laughs> of a, a tough balance with a lot of people that get into uh, doing these Kickstarters. Did yeah, you it, utilize it, a lot of the same pieces from your, it looked like some of the, uh, we, you had carryover, I guess, with some of your pieces, I guess, were you? Totally. So yeah. four of the types of tea, they're actually the same. So uh, green, oolong, black, and white. Mm -hmm. um, but we've added purple and yellow. So yellow tea, it's not too popular, but um, in China it would be, I believe, the second most popular. So the nice little tea leaves, they, they're similar in style to the other ones, and they're all sliding up the board. Has anybody accused you of over-engineering this game yet? Uh, someone said, you know what? I like your game, but it's uh, so overproduced. It's almost as overproduced as Wingspan. And I was like, you know what? That I'll take it. That's a compliment. Like <laughs> yeah. And we totally look up to Jamie. Um, yeah. And he's been helpful in answering any questions we might have. Like, yeah, people are super accessible. We just want to make something that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we don't want to have too many like deluxifications afterwards because you might as well like buy something that's complete. But um, yeah, we've just had fun with it. And Connie is like the brains behind that. So yeah. uh, we have these dice trays that are add-ons and she will like, <clears throat> you know, with a microscope, make sure that everything is going well and we'll chat with the artists. Um, our next stretch goal is actually featuring 12 of these covering every kind of meeple color um, for the board game world. It's great for component trays. So uh, just the visual overall um, branding. Yeah, like she's brilliant with that. Yeah, I mean, you guys certainly seem to have sourcing down uh, quite well, right? So if I look at those tins, like the tins aren't cheap right. tins, like they're embossed, right, with the different leaves yes. and they have different colors that to hold uh, the different uh, you know tea leaf uh, meeple pieces. Like it is, like I was surprised because okay? I've I've got a lot of experience in sourcing and. I, I know a lot of the work that's gone behind this and I know a lot of the cost <laughs> that's involved in what you're putting here, uh, you know, out on this campaign. And it's, uh, you know, there's always kind of the balance of how much money are we going to be able to make up the, when this when dust settles? Are we going <laughs> to totally. make any money? Right. But man, there's a lot of really nice pieces to this. The, uh, the dice trace for the people listening didn't see, uh, Dan has these, uh, and I've seen this technology somewhere before. I haven't seen them custom printed like this, which is really cool, but it's almost like a, is it like a leather or like a pleather type of, uh, yeah, it's a faux leather. So vegan pleather. Basically. Yeah. So yeah, it's a square. And then basically the corners kind of pinch up and then they snap together to form a bowl. Right. So they ship mm -hmm. nice and flat. They go in the box. I assume they fit in the box. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. So they fit in the box. Uh, you pull them out for the game. You snap the things together, and then you roll your dice in. You don't have dice splashing all over the place, and uh, you can control kind of where those dice go. The cool thing here, as Dan was just saying, is that uh, he's got custom designs actually on the inside of each of these uh, these dice trays, right? So, again, yes. more customization, which uh, for me is crazy. Like just 
because it's not like you're producing 10,000 games at a time, right? Like even if you right. hit three, 400,000. It's probably 5,000. Yeah, probably 5,000 games, right? Like that is in manufacturing world, that's nothing, right? So to get this kind of customization um, at those numbers, uh, bravo. Like you guys are, are doing something, uh, obviously something right. Thanks. Uh, basically, it comes down to finding a group of factories that offer yeah. similar things. So um, we reached out to about a dozen furniture factories. We're like, mm. hey, we've seen these little trays for keychains. Can you make something for board games? Um, right now, they're trying to make prototypes of the next 10 that we'll offer. So we had our artists working for a week, and now yeah. we're getting pictures. Hopefully, it'll come by the end of the campaign. But yeah, it's kind of fun, too. Or the little tins. Um, they come from the same manufacturer that does Starbucks tins for their Christmas catalog. Oh, that's cool. But you would never find it unless you reached out to a dozen tin manufacturers in China. So are you going to each of the individual manufacturers or are you trying to use, do you use like a local, let me back the bus up here a bit. A lot of uh, board game uh, manufacturers or publishers like myself, you'll, you'll, you know, if you're doing it right, you're going direct to factory instead of trying to go through a broker in, in North America. Right. But in many cases, those factories themselves act as brokers. And, you know, the guy down the street is the guy that's uh, the master of doing dice. The guy over on the other way does the cards and they kind of just kind of maybe they their thing is they do uh, tokens. Right. And they yes. assemble it there. So are you using the factory to do the sourcing or are you literally going to each of the different factories yourself, sourcing different components and then sending them to your your main facility? Yeah, a lot of the time they would call that a trade company. Yeah. So it's like someone who um, sources all of the different wooden components for, um, you know, Ikea type stuff. And then there would be 30 different factories that focus on different things within the Ikea catalog. So uh, for us, we tried to find a specific um, furniture factory that then made these trays and they yeah. make other similar trays and upholstery material or luggage. Um, yeah, there's quite a few others who were trade companies that we found out later, yeah. but they usually tag on like 30% more of the cost yeah. just to facilitate you um, and the language barrier as well. So if you do enough digging, you can find the heart of an actual factory. So what I'm getting um, at though, is that, are they billing you directly and then the other manufacturer? They like, are. Oh, really? So it's not like yeah, you're the still- actual factory. Wow, good for you. That's a lot of work. Um, so, <laughs> and that's why that's why we get a little bit behind on things because we're not dealing with just the board game factory. Yeah. Um, we wanted custom uh, first player tokens that were metal coins. I saw that. That's wicked. Yeah. Yeah, we talked to a dozen yeah. metal coin factories, and we asked them, "Can you put in a nice reflective blue inside the actual gold coin?" And they're like, "We can't do it." But we finally found one that could. So now we have to order three, five thousand of those metal coins. And then they produce them over three weeks and then send them to the board game factory. Yeah. Um, or if we want a special dice, the board game factory might not have too many connections. So if you really want something, you'll be able to find it basically. That's crazy. Now I noticed on this one, you also have, is it, uh, you got Andrew Bosley. That, did he do the cover art yeah. or, or how much of the art did he do? <clears throat> uh, it's the same artist, Mary Hasdyke. She's from Calgary as well, who did um, the front box. Okay. Um, and... You know, the back of the, the cards. Yep. Uh, just a little spoiler, there's going to be another stretch goal with um, another card backing, just so you can tell the difference between the ships and the plantation cards. Yeah. Um, and then the very talented Sahana Vijay from India, she did um, all the boats and all the different tea cards themselves. So it was a balancing act of um, managing three differing artists, and then they had to have a similar... Uh, style that came together so so it all fits um, together a, right yeah 
yeah, there's a bit of collaboration and then the graphic design has to come on top as well. So um, I have two friends that help with that, Andrew and Lane, if they're listening. And the three of us, we would have like 2 a.m. Discord calls as we're figuring out, you know, the market board or something. So that's lots crazy. Of fun. And I noticed that um, you, from a marketing standpoint, so you've got uh, Backer Kit, I guess, is doing the, uh, the, the Facebook marketing. marketing for you, essentially. Um, yep. Are you using any other marketing companies at all, or is, or is it kind of your funds all kind of in that, uh, that bucket? Yeah, uh, Connie's a full-time teacher, so uh, when she comes home, like, we'll chat a bit about the campaign and, and different things in the updates, um, podcast as well, but personally, it would take a bit too much work for us to to run like 50 um, Facebook ads or, or different places. So um, Backer, Backer Kit's been super helpful in that regard. Um, I would like to run some Reddit ads or oh, really? maybe okay. a few more on Google. Um, that worked well for us last time when I did the marketing. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're just trying to execute what you're good at. So, um, and we, of course, are doing the fulfillment of the other campaign and baby's on the way. So that's why <laughs> there's no pressure. We'll, we'll just let it run and... And who's uh, doing your pledge campaign. management? Is it Backer Kit doing your pledge manager or using a different pledge manager? Or? Uh, yeah, so I'm kind of undecided at the moment, but yeah. we'll probably run it through our Shopify store. Hmm. Um, there's a bunch of plugins that you can use to run your own, and then people are in your ecosystem to uh, check out your web shop a bit more or like the story behind you. Uh, previously, we used Crowdox, which was really good, yeah, and then GameFound, mm -hmm. which is, of course, free, but um, because our web shops are ready on Shopify, it, it kind of makes sense to run everything through that, especially going forward if we ever, like, I don't know, became like Jamie Stegmeier and just ran our own program. But well, that's a dream, goals. I guess. Is get to the point where, you know, this is, totally. a, this is a company that's, this, you know, church still lean and, and people that know Jamie know that he still runs it lean, right? Um, yes. But being able to, uh, you know, make a living out of a passion like this, uh, something that everybody loves. And, you know, anytime you can, you know, make a living out of something that you love and also bring joy to other people and, and see, you know, the joy on their mm -hmm. faces, that that's kind of the dream, right? I think that's what we're all kind of shooting for. Totally. And then uh, can we talk a little bit about taxes? So there's been a lot of change, like there's been a lot of changes in this industry over the past year and a half, right? So, um, yep. you know, you've had Brexit, which then that triggered both the European Union as well as uh, the UK saying, well, no more on the digital marketing side. Uh, you know, no more just shipping stuff in and claiming your manufacturing costs. Now you're paying uh, VAT tax on retail coming into uh, into Europe and into the UK. Um, yeah. How how are you handling that? Like, I, I think I saw somewhere on your page that some taxes are going to be charged on the earth. Can you just kind of dig it? Yeah. To that a little bit for us. Um, all of us small publishers are trying to you know figure things out yeah. and navigate a new world. Um, I think as of July first, those things take effect. Um, and we did you know, properly declare from our previous campaigns, but um, even your own inventory going to a warehouse or something where you're not sure if you'll sell it, like we have to make sure that we we do things right. So um, as we're fulfilling the last campaign, we're like, you know what, Brexit has happened, everyone, that's totally okay. We're gonna take the cut. Um, actually, I just confirmed a factory, sorry, a warehouse today uh, in the UK. So then we're gonna send our games to Germany Unfortunately, we have to pay VAT right away, and then they'll send it uh, directly to the UK. We have to pay that other tax and then fulfill it through that accordingly. So uh, for this third campaign that we're doing, um, I believe we're in the process of registering for VAT 
just so that we can mm. charge that up front for the EU backers, uh, which is listed in the campaign. I believe it's roughly 20%. It might yeah. matter per country that you're in, basically. But um, yeah, that's the, the new way going forward that at port of entry, you have to pay it for sure, um, whether you've sold it or not, basically. Yeah, it's, um, it's probably foreign to... Uh, a lot of people, right? And I'd say especially in the States, right? Because in the state, I mean, in Canada, right. you and I know about, uh, you know, HST. So you got the 13% up here, you yeah. know, is, is a shock going into, you know, Europe uh, from here thinking, okay, that's another 7%. But I can imagine some countries where they're not used to paying anything right now. So you got to, you got to foot the bill for the, for the tax going in and uh, they just refuse your goods, right? If you don't pay the tax, your goods aren't, yes. are, are not clearing customs, right? So it's not even like you can maybe squeeze it through or maybe... You, you got to pay it. Um, my understanding as well, on because we're still going through the, the registration process ourselves uh, for Europe uh, VAT, and we're going to do ours out of Germany, and we're already registered in the UK. Um, but the, the European one, uh, I think one further wrinkle is they didn't even open it up to foreign registration until, yes. <laughs> until I think it's this month or next month, right? So for people that are yeah. in mid-campaign, it's kind of weird because they want you to pay them tax based on when you collected the funds, not even when you ship it, but when you collect the funds. So it's, um, you know, something that I think a lot of people are trying to navigate, right. As publishers for backers out there, hopefully there's some patience because you know, no one has an ant, like no one has the answer, right. Everybody's trying to kind of figure it out on the fly. We're all kind of chatting with each other kind of behind the scenes to try to figure out what, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing to make sure we yeah. can do it? But I think we all have our hearts in this, in the right place, which is we want to do it, above board and we want to be legit and you know everything go through clean um this is an interesting one i have yet to see this on a campaign where someone uh says during pledge manager we're collecting taxes i mean that's uh it's something i might actually consider on my next campaign it's pretty smart because we had to actually inflate our price to cover off that the, the taxes right and now you know, somebody looking at a game might say, well, I don't know if the game, that game seems like it might be overpriced. Well, it's overpriced because we built the taxes in, but in, you know, you'll have a situation where maybe you come in at a lower price, but then taxes are added on top. So people can see kind of the value of the game and you're not, you know, have that sticker shock kind of uh, out of the gate. Yeah. And historically, a lot of publishers, like we've paid the VAT ourselves, mm -hmm. like we've made the shipping price really accessible. We've uh, incentivized it. Um, but when push comes to shove, like, I had some games to ship to Israel and also South Africa. Um, if you're charging only $40 for the rest of the world, um, those copies ended us costing, I think it was 80 American yeah. to ship, but uh, we've agreed to the price and the person's paid for it. So we have to uh, deliver the products or give a full refund. Um, in this campaign as well, uh, I think we've used the model that Everdale did for their recent campaign. So they are charging um, VAT and taxes, even Canadian taxes in their case, in the wow. pledge managers. So, um, yeah, we thought it would be best just to, you know, cover our bases and make sure that um, EU backers recognize that, yes, there will be the percentage added later on. Well, I think it's interesting. I was talking to uh, Nigel Matthews from um, uh, GamesQuest, and, and they're in the UK. They're a distribution house yep. that, to help with Kickstarter fulfillment. And, you know, he's helped me, advised me a lot on the taxes, and, you know, he's hosted some seminars that people have been part of to get some experts in and kind of help us, you know, unpack this whole thing. And it's interesting from his perspective, he's, he said, you know, people here are used to paying the tax. Like people are paying 20% on all their purchases now. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not like this is a foreign thing. Right. So it's not like 
coming in and saying to somebody in the UK, hey, we're going to charge you VAT on this purchase, that they're going to be like hands in the air and say, whoa, you know, where's this mystery tax coming from? They pay tax on all their purchases. And you and I both know this for Canada. And, right. you know, I've talked to a lot of our, our counterparts south of the border that getting their head around the, the, the HST and helping educate, you know, some of my clients and so forth on even HST in Canada. And it's like, hmm. guys, this is part for the course. Like everybody understands you pay HST. Like there's no resistance to, to that 13%. Like don't worry about it, right? It's just part of everyday life. Right. So I don't think there's going to be as much resistance as some people think there might be. Um, on the other hand, the uh, certifications. How have you guys dealt with the cert? Because there's the, classically the CE certifications, right? Totally. Now the UK's got a new one. Uh, the US, I believe, has this kind of child toy and something legislation, which is another certification. How have you guys kind of navigated that? Yeah, uh, that's actually news to me for the American one, but yeah. um, for the CE71 for um, the EU, especially when your product is below 13 years of age, um, Chai is eight plus. So we paid, I think it was about 1,500 or 2,000 American for um, these different acid tests. So they would break down the game altogether and um, undergo different rigorous testing. Um, and that's only valid for, I believe, 18 months. So we have to do it again coming up um, and that's just for the one print run that you've done as well. So, yeah. uh, it becomes a little bit arduous, but yeah, it's legit. And it allows you to put the little CE sign on your box and sell it in the EU. Um, I mean, you could try to do it without doing it, but you wouldn't want to run the risk of having something happen and someone swallowing a piece. Yeah. Um, you should have the ages, you know, zero to three should not be having this. There's swallowable yep. pieces and whatnot. So. Um, yeah, and it, it'll make your box look more professional too, having all the different logos and whatnot. So yeah, the US one hit me when uh, our Amazon listing got paused, and they oh, said, right. where, where, yeah. where, "Where's your paperwork on the the child and safety, whatever?" And so we looked it up and like, what the yeah. heck are they talking about? And uh, yeah, there's a whole testing protocol. So your facility, when they do testing, they have to test against the US protocol, in addition to the CD, CE protocol. Um, gotcha. so knowing that now going into the next games, we'll make sure that we, you know, we incorporate that, but it sucks for the publishers out there where these things are kind of coming to light mid campaign, right. When you haven't planned for it, then it's, right. you know, it becomes a, a bit of an issue. Um, from my end, I just want to say that, um, you know, you've always provided good advice to me, uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, I've, you know, I've, since we first met, I've reached out to you and shoot you a question here and there. You've always been wonderful in, in getting me, getting back to me, like, sometimes within like seconds. <laughs> so I don't know if you're oh, waiting thanks. for my, waiting for my <laughs> note or what, but you get back to me quick. So I, I just want to personally thank you for that. Cause that's super cool. And I think it's a good reflection of you and Connie and kind of your whole personalities and how you guys approach this industry, which is, um, this kind of coopetition, right? You know, we're, we're, we can help each other and that that's okay. You know, we can learn from each other and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, if we can get more people playing board games and, you know, get more people into the industry, that's going to help, you know, everybody overall. So I just want to thank you. for Yeah. That. Likewise. Yeah. There's uh more ships in the sea raises the tide. And, um, sometimes we'll talk about, Oh no, my campaign's not doing well because there's a big Simon, um, campaign on Kickstarter too. But, um, I think the opposite actually happens where people yeah. are looking for different price points. So, um, they might actually look at your game and find it more desirable or just add it as basically an add on to a massive campaign that they're part of. So, um, well, yeah, I can tell you when there was, when my last campaign, when there would be a, a major, uh, launch, uh, you know, during that month, I would see a spike. 
So someone else launches their game on Kickstarter. Totally. People go on Kick, yeah. People go on the Kickstarter, and then while they're there, they're browsing around, and you know, they, they find my game. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's necessarily. Um, no, I can understand if you have a game that's almost identical to another game launching at the exact same time. So people are going to have to try to right. choose between the, the the two. But you know, somebody that loves dungeon crawlers, you know, may not like um, dice drafting. Right? Those are two different styles totally. of games. So you know, those two games can coexist even at the same time. Uh, in Kickstarter. So Dan, I want to wish you all the best uh, with this, uh, this campaign. Uh, you guys are just going to crush it. I know this is going to go, this is going to be your biggest one yet. There, there's no doubt in my mind. This is, this <laughs> is going to be awesome. And I can't wait to play my game as well when I get it. All the best awesome. to you and Connie this coming year. You take care. Thanks for all the support. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast. Hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.